hug was to make sure, Micah, that if I have coronavirus, I'm taking you down with me. In 1976, British journalist Stephen Pyle started a club titled the Not Terribly Good Club of Great Britain for those who shoot for the stars but end up in the mud. To join this club, you had to demonstrate your mediocrity and, quote, special incompetence. Pyle was the president of the club, but a soup can fell. He miraculously reached out and grabbed it. And because that showed such special competence, he had to step down as the club's president. In 1979, he wrote a book called The Book of Failures and started a number of clubs based on the book. But as the popularity of the book grew, and so did the clubs, and because of his embarrassing success which violated one of the bylaws of the club, he was forced to disband the organization. You can now buy copies of the book, The Book of Failures, for less than a dollar online. Now here's an interesting question. Was journalist Pyle a success or was he a failure? I guess it depends how you look at it, doesn't it? See, whether we determine someone's success or failure depends upon our standard of success and failure. Well, we live in a certain world where there are standards of success. I'm guessing a lot of you, like me at my time in my life, have had moments where I feel like, I don't feel like a success. I feel like a failure. Wish I could go back and change this. And sometimes we live with the regret of mistakes that we've made. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning we're going to realize that God has a very different standard of success and failure. In fact, in the world's eyes, if you fail, you might be disqualified from impact. In God's eyes, to join his club, you have to fail. That's the ticket to ultimate impact and success. So we're going to take a look at a story where God's closest followers, his 12 disciples actually fail pretty miserably, but God restores them and uses that in his ministry and impact through them. So the story this morning starts in a place called the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Israel, you know that as this image comes up, this is an old picture, an ancient picture of Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount, and the top right corner you see the Mount of Olives. So there's the city of Jerusalem, there's the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives that goes up on a hill overlooking Jerusalem. Now it's interesting that Jesus goes here with his disciples, because in 2 Samuel 15.30, David did a similar thing. It says, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. Why did David go there? Because he was ran out of Jerusalem because his son Absalom had stolen the throne. Jesus also goes to the Mount of Olives when he prays over Jerusalem and weeps over them. Verse 31, Jesus speaks to his apostles and says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. About three or four months ago, I went with a, a group of thinkers and influencers to Israel. And one of the people that went with us, with us was a Navy SEAL who's a Christian writer and speaker. And of course, because I was interested, I asked him, what was the training like to be a SEAL? Tell me about some of your missions. 
And I remember one thing I've heard from a number of SEALs is when they go on a mission, they know for sure that their fellow SEALs have their backs. They know their SEALs will lay down their lives for one another, for an innocent bystander, for their country. Because you only become a SEAL if you demonstrate a willingness before you get there to go to the extremes and never give up. That's what you know if you're a SEAL. Well, here's Jesus going into spiritual battle with a group of people that are untested. In fact, not only does he not know what they're going to do, he actually knows they are about to abandon him at his moment of greatest need. He knows this. Can you imagine how lonely Jesus felt? Sometimes because Jesus is God, we kind of give him a pass on his suffering, but Jesus was fully human. Last weekend, I was preaching up in the Bay Area at a church, and before the service, a high school student, he was going to be a sophomore, so probably 15, 16 years old. He was a sophomore. He asked if we could chat, and I said, hey, what's going on? He says, I don't, I don't know what to do. He says, I have no Christian friends. He goes, I don't have any. He goes, in fact, I had one Christian friend. This kid was an athlete. He goes, I'm a receiver. He was a quarterback on my football team, and recently he just took his life. He goes, what do I do? He said, I feel so alone in my life. And we talked for a long time, and I prayed with him, and I encouraged him. But one thing I tried to say is, I said, I know you feel alone. I get it. But realize, part of being a Christian is that God just hasn't given us a book. He hasn't just given us a prophet. God doesn't just stay up in heaven distant from us. He has stepped into human race And Jesus, in human flesh, he knows exactly how you feel. I said, in this passage I'm teaching on next weekend, Jesus was abandoned by his closest followers. We live in an age where there is an epidemic of loneliness and depression and anxiety. I work with this young generation called Gen Z, and I also do a lot of research. And studies show that many in this generation would describe their generation as the loneliest. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but at the heart of it for many is this little rectangle thing we call a smartphone. And I'm not saying technology is bad. I love technology. But we don't often reflect upon how technology affects our relationship with people. Friends, a digital lug, a digital like doesn't compare to a physical hug. It doesn't. So many people are lonely and depressed today because they don't have flesh and blood relationships. They don't feel known. They don't feel understood. Well, the heart of our faith is a God who actually understands. He's experienced loneliness. He's experienced rejection. He's felt what it means to feel like everybody's against you. And you are the only one doing that which is right. That's why Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we see Jesus hungry in the Bible. We see him tired. In this passage, we see this human Jesus suffering and alone. It's powerful. But the story continues in verse 32. Jesus said, but after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows three times, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not die, deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. And we've all heard the phrase that pride comes before the fall, right? Pride comes before the fall. So if pride comes before somebody is knocked down, what comes before somebody is raised up? If pride comes before the fall, what comes before somebody is exalted? Humility. That's right. If pride comes before the fall, then humility comes before the rise. Now, Peter and all the apostles are well-meaning, and they love Jesus, and they've learned from Jesus, but they're naive, and they're clueless, and they're untested, and they fail at this moment. Why? Because they rely upon their own strength. I remember when I was a kid, my mom said to me, she said, son, never say never. Because I'm somewhat philosophically inclined and was a little bit sassy, I said, mom, if you're never supposed to say never, why did you just say never say never? (laughs) And then my dad rightly put me in my place. But her point was, it's not wise to say I will never do fill in the blank. I mean, here's Peter going, I will never do that. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. It's just not smart and probably clueless in many areas to say that'll never happen to me. Peter said that, and that very night it happened to him. But what happened is Peter was up here, and what Jesus needed to do was to humble him and allow him to be broken so he could ultimately use him for his purposes. It says in a passage you'll look at in weeks coming up, it says, Peter denies him three times and went outside and wept bitterly. He was broken. You know, God cannot and does not use us until we're humble, until we're broken, until we failed, so to speak. Then we're in a position for God to use us for his good purposes. You know, it's amazing. You see this throughout the literature and stories of the world. This is kind of a universal theme. So as Pastor Micah mentioned, I love superheroes. One of my favorite superhero uh, movies was Thor 1, which came out in 2011. Thor 1 is about Thor, who's about to become king, but he's arrogant and he's rash and he's foolish. And he doesn't respect his father. He almost leads him into war and costs him a ton of lives. So what happens is his king, his father has to take the hammer from him and banish him to earth, losing his powers. And he only gets his powers back when he's been sufficiently humbled. Take a look at this clip from the movie. Thor won, right when he gets his powers back. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry, but these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this.
whosoever holds this hammer. If it be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. what happens next. Thor comes back and wins. Two big takeaways from this. Number one, we have really good base in our new building, don't we? <laughs> they have effectively put in a good sound system. Isn't it amazing to see the same theme in this film? He has to actually be willing to lay down his life. He's got to be humble. He's broken. Then he's ready to be the hero. That's what happens with the apostles. They were naive and they were foolish and then they're humbled. So I often think about in this passage in the garden, what if instead of being up here where Peter's just rash and foolish, he had already been humbled and Jesus says to him, you'll deny me three times. I think Peter might have responded differently and said, Lord, by your grace, may it not be so. My desire is to follow you no matter the cost and to lay down my life for you. Yet I know I can't do this in my strength, but only in yours. If I fail, may I rely upon your grace and comfort to be restored back to you. How do we know Peter got this? In 1 Peter 5.16, 5, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. Pride comes before the fall. Humility comes before the rise. If you want God to use you, you've got to be willing to humble yourself. It's out of your brokenness that God raises us up. Verse 26, 36, it says, And then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, if you've been to Israel, you've probably been to this place called Gethsemane. There is a garden on the bottom part of the Mount of Olives. Now, those trees that are there are about 800 years old. But scholars are pretty confident this is what the garden would have looked like in the time of Jesus. Here's a picture recently when I sent that. It was about a decade ago. And uh, Pastor Derek goes, yeah, your son looks old in that picture. <laughs> you can go and visit the Garden of Gethsemane today. And it says in verse 37, it says, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. When I read this, something hit me. You tell me. When people are confronted with Jesus, who normally falls on their face? Jesus or them? Them. They do. In fact, earlier in Matthew 17, just nine verses earlier, the same three apostles, Peter, James, and John, go up with Jesus to the transfiguration. And it says they fell face down and were terrified. But in this passage, Jesus is such at the point of death that he falls on his face. 
Now the question is why? And the quick easy answer we often give as Christians is, well, he's about to be crucified. We've seen the passion. We know how terrible it is. But I think the physical suffering on displaying the passion, which, by the way, to be honest with you, was PG rating compared to what crucifixion was really like. Even Mel Gibson had to taper it back. The physical suffering he went through is merely a physical demonstration of the deeper spiritual agony that Jesus was going through. I mean, think about it. The only sinless person who's ever lived was about to take the weight of all the sins from every person past, present, and future. In one sense, it's the greatest act of justice because Jesus does this willingly. In another sense, it's the greatest act of injustice. His anguish was not just that he would be crucified, although that was a piece of it. His anguish is that he was about to spiritually ingest all of the injustices ever done in the history of the world, and he's the only one who is innocent. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made himself to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we see this human side of Jesus in anguish, but don't miss, in the same passage in verse 45, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, when I used to hear this, I thought son of God means he's God, son of man means he's man, but it doesn't. The phrase son of man is a divine title from Daniel chapter 7. When Jesus calls himself the son of man, he's actually calling himself God. So in Matthew 26, 64, a few verses later, when Jesus is on trial, it says, but I tell you in the future, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of God in power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus refers to himself as God in human flesh in the same passage in which we see him in anguish and suffering. Isn't that amazing piece of the incarnation? He is God, but he is fully human. Verse 39, it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You ever pray to God for something and God doesn't answer your prayer? It doesn't seem to answer your prayer. I think of two friends of mine, one a couple decades ago, one within the past couple years, amazing speakers, apologists, evangelists, and writers who both died young and prematurely, and I prayed they didn't, and it made no human sense. No human sense. Why would God allow this to happen? You know what's interesting? In this passage, Jesus is praying to God the Father to let this cup be taken from him. And he doesn't answer his prayer, does he? You ever thought about that? If God doesn't answer a certain prayer to Jesus because he had a deeper will, do you think God might at times not answer your prayer and answer my prayer? That's kind of an unsettling idea, isn't it? Jesus pleads to the Lord and he doesn't. Even the apostle Paul has a thorn in his flesh. And God doesn't take it away for deeper purposes. Now it seems to me this could either be encouraging or it could be discouraging. You could say, okay, wait a minute. 
If God at times doesn't answer a prayer that Jesus and Paul prayed, then why should I bother to pray? Because clearly I'm not Jesus or I'm not Paul. At least hopefully you're humble enough to realize that one. Or it might be encouraging saying, okay, if God doesn't answer a certain prayer of Jesus and one of Paul, then when I pray, I'm in good company. This is a part of the bargain of what it means to be in relationship with God. But the last part gives the clue. The last part, what did Jesus say? He said, not as I will, but as you will. This could be a tough pill to swallow. Because when I pray, sometimes I'm tempted with the idea, like, God, can't you see it my way? Because if you could, you would know that I see things better than you do. Hello, God. I mean, honestly, clearly this has to be the best plan. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? That's human nature, isn't it? Jesus prays something, but he says, ultimately, it's not as I will, but you will. In other words, the purpose of prayer is not to talk God into something we want, but to talk ourselves into humbly following what God wants. That's a different kind of prayer, isn't it? Why do we pray for enemies? Yes, so God blesses them, but it's more for us so we can love them. And then the heart of the passage gets to verses 40. It says, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass until, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Do you notice how many times the word again is showing up? Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Let us rise and be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is actually one of the saddest parts of the gospel. That Jesus is suffering so deeply, he's at the point of death. I don't know if you've suffered at the point of death. I haven't. The close I was last year, I went to the Philippines. I came back and I got some flu. And for two days, I was on the ground in fetal position, just trying to make time pass. My stomach hurt so bad. I was like, God, at some point, if you just end this, it'd be a lot easier for me. That was like the first time that thought kind of went into my mind. I realized that doesn't compare to the suffering many of you have been through, certainly the suffering of Jesus. But that's how much he's suffering. He knows what's coming, and the apostles fall asleep again and again and again. Talk about an adventure in missing the point. An adventure in failure is what's happening with the apostles. They don't get it. But what's amazing here is you notice what Jesus says at the end. What does he say at the end? He says, rise, let us be going, my betrayer's hand. You see the suffering Jesus is going through? It's like he's conquered the cross before he even gets there. Now he has this resolve and he never looks back. As we look at this passage, there's a number of things we can learn from, but a few things hit me. Number one, since I'm an apologist professor, I have to point out that I think these stories tell us that the Gospels are reliable. I really do. So some time ago, my sister left her computer open, open to her Facebook page. And I felt the need to tell the world on her behalf 
how wonderful and awesome her older brother is. <laughs> I can't remember what I wrote, but something like, I'm sitting here reflecting on the people who've changed my life, and my brother comes to mind. He's so sweet. He's, I mean, I just poured it on. And then I come back before she noticed. I'm looking at the comments. They're like, that's so wonderful. I've got tears in my eyes. He's so great. Now, of course, when my sister opened up, she didn't stop and think, oh, my goodness. Look at the prank my sister pulled on me. That didn't cross her mind. She knew definitively that one person had done this prank. My wife. No, I'm kidding. My wife wouldn't do that. It was me. It was me. Why? Because we intuitively know something. That when we make up information or tell things that aren't true, it's either to get out of trouble or to make ourselves look good. Right? Nobody gets on Instagram in the morning and says, I wonder what post I can invent so everybody thinks I'm a loser and a failure and an idiot. If anything, we invent stuff to make ourselves look good. That's human nature, right? So historians have something they call a criterion of embarrassment, that if a writer includes embarrassing material, that's because the writer cares more about truth than his or her own reputation. Well, just look at this story. It's a bunch of failures. You think they would invent a story that Peter denies Jesus three times the leader of the apostles, that all the apostles abandon Jesus at his greatest need, that they fall asleep in the garden, that Jesus, by the way, was crucified. Crucifixion was shameful to the Jews and cowardly to the Romans. Let's invent a savior who was crucified and shamed and who looks like a coward. And you think they'd invent the person who betrayed Jesus was one of his closest. You see why this story has the ring of authenticity written by eyewitnesses who care more about truth than the way people will perceive them. Second, I think as we read this passage, Jesus wants us to wake up to his agenda. Whenever I read a passage in the Bible, I always ask myself, why is this included? Why did Matthew include this part and not something else? So why does Matthew not only include this story, but mention betrayal nine times, deny four times, and keep telling us that they fell asleep? Because Matthew wrote this a few decades after the time of the events. And the followers of Jesus could be tempted like the apostles were to fall asleep, so to, sleep, so to speak, and get distracted by the things at hand, the physical need, and miss what God was doing. I can relate to this passage when it says their eyes were heavy because my son in basketball it ended like two weeks ago. He's a high school student at Capstone Valley Christian Schools, but they're up five mornings a week from 5 to 7.30, lifting weights and working on their basketball game. So since my son can't drive, guess who gets to get them there? Pastor Ty comes to my house. No, he doesn't do that. I'm kidding. <laughs> And I don't blame him for not doing that. I'm up at 4.30. So at 8.30 at night, I like to watch TV shows with my daughter. And I just have no energy left. My eyes are heavy. And I always say to my daughter, I say, I'm fading. So she always says to me, I'm tired. She goes, I know you're fading. Well, I understand that the apostles are fading here. But why are they fading? Because they don't understand the moment. You see, anguish, as Pastor Eric said, anguish is a stimulant. Jesus was awake because he knew the moment at hand. They were falling asleep because they were distracted and didn't understand. So here's the question. Do you understand what's taking place in the spiritual battle around you? 
because we're all tempted to get distracted by physical needs as important as they are and miss the deeper spiritual needs of people among us. Could that be you? And third, if God can use the apostles, he can use anyone. If God can use the apostles, this band of incompetent (laughs) failures, God can use you. And God can use me. As I read this passage, I noticed the word betray shows up nine times and deny five times. The author of Matthew wants to make sure that we don't miss that his closest followers failed him at his moment of deepest need. Don't miss this. Both Peter and Judas failed Jesus. Now you might say, Judas is thoughtful, planned betrayal was worse than Peter's impulsive failure. And I think that's true to a degree, but notice something. In Matthew chapter 17 earlier, Jesus had said, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 10, if you disown me before men, I will disown you before my father. So what's the difference? Peter failed, but he was humble enough to allow God to restore him so he could be raised up. Judas was in despair. He thought his failure was permanent. He went out and he took his life. So friends, don't miss this. You can deny or betray Christ. And if you repent, still be used by God. Do you realize that? I mean, so many people with, mis- with mistakes and they feel like they failed. And it defines their life. And I read this story, and it encourages me the times I've failed, and I've betrayed God in my life and my choices. I go, my goodness, if his closest followers can betray him, and yet God understands this because he suffered, and he can restore them and use them, certainly God can restore me and use me in spite of my failures. In fact, ironically, if you've ever had the thought, but I failed, God, you can't use me, you need to flip that around and say, oh, I failed. I just might be the kind of person that God can use. And you know why? You know why God doesn't typically pick the person who looks like a hero? Because then we tend to give that person credit. But when God uses us through our failures and through our shortcomings, Number one, we rely upon him. But number two, God gets the credit. Friends, if you failed in your life, don't think that you're disqualified from God understanding, from being a part of the church, from being a part of ministry. Because reality is, if you failed, welcome to the club. (laughs) Because Jesus' close followers, they failed. But what did they learn? They learned we've got to be humble. We've got to rely not upon our own strength, but rely upon God's strength. You see, pride comes before the fall, but humility comes before the rise. Peter learned that lesson the hard way. He was weeping bitterly, and he was broken. But God restored him. Friends, if you've been broken, and if you've failed, please know there is a God who understands intimately and sympathizes with us. 
but who looks down and says, you know what? It's actually because of your failures that I can use you if you're just humble enough to repent and trust me. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have a different way of looking at success and failure than the word, than the world does. We thank you for the freedom we can have of just believing in you and just the empowerment. And I pray if there's some people here who have felt that God didn't answer a prayer or they failed in some fashion, let them know that you understand them and you restore them and you love them. And that actually, ironically, it's out of our seeming failures that you can restore us and use us to make a difference.